this is exciting, sending people out all over the world to take the gospel. Uh, there was a significant little portion of time when I was in college when I thought for a little while that I was going to be a philosopher. And it didn't last very long because one day I woke up and thought, that's a terrible idea that <laughs> I would become a philosopher. But for a little while, there was this period of time where I was reading all philosophy I could get my hands on. And my favorite probably was a 19th century Danish philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Now, uh, Kierkegaard is one of those guys that's a lot of fun to read, except for those portions where he's torturously difficult to understand what in the world he's talking about which is about two-thirds of the time. So two-thirds of the time, you don't even know what he's saying. The other third just sings. It's beautiful because he is the master of parables. And my favorite parable that he tells um, is a story about a little town that had a theater. And in the theater, people had come to the theater one day, and a fire broke out backstage at the theater. And there was a clown, a guy was dressed up as a clown, who was going to perform in the show that day. And he sees the fire backstage. He knows that everyone is in danger. That if, that if they're not warned, they're going to die. They're all going to die. So he runs out on the stage and he says, there's a fire, get out. And they laugh because he's a clown. And you take a clown like a clown. You don't take a clown seriously. It's a joke. So they laugh. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. I know I'm dressed up like a clown, but there's a fire backstage, and we're all going to save yourselves. And they applaud. That is good. That seems even real. And then Kierkegaard says, so shall the end of the world be. And he concludes his parable by saying, I think that in the end, the world will come to a close amidst laughter and applause because everyone thinks it's a joke. We, we've been talking this year, this scripture that the Lord has given us, Acts 2.42, and these four priorities of the earliest church. And I believe the Lord is giving us this to prepare us for what is on the horizon, what is coming in our city, in our culture, our, our country, uh, the, the persecution that is looming on the horizon. And, and, and even as I say that, there is a very real danger, and I have a, something of a fear that you might take a clown as a clown. You might just say, look, he's a pastor. Of course he's going to say that stuff. Yeah, a preacher says what a preacher says, you know. And you miss the heaviness, the weight of what's being said here. We've been in this verse, Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves. This is after the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people have become believers, and these new 3,000, this, this band of Christ followers, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And we've taken those this year in reverse order. So we started with prayer. We did about four weeks on that. We've been talking about breaking of bread just by doing that out in the gym once a month. We spent four weeks talking about the fellowship. And now we get to the first phrase. We kind of worked our ways backwards into this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. And where do we find today? Where do we find the apostles' teachings? You can just shout it out if you think you know the answer. It's okay. And the, okay, yes, in the New Testament, right, which is built on the authority of the Old Testament, the foundation of the Old Testament. So we could say in the Bible, in the New Testament, that's the apostles' teaching. So there is a very real danger, and I'm sensitive to this this morning. And in fact, I have an urgency in my spirit to be vigilant so we don't fall in this trap. There is a danger that as we unpack this early church devotion to the apostles' teaching, that what you hear me say is read your Bible. And your response is, yeah, yeah, read your Bible. Yeah, you've said that before. I've heard this message before. You know, take a clown like a clown. Take, take a pastor like a clown. Of course, pastor's going to say that. Preacher's going to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you might altogether miss the urgency and the utmost importance of being devoted to the scriptures because you cease to see it as a matter of life and death in the upcoming persecution and you start seeing it as just another religious ritual. Yeah, yeah, read your Bible. I got that, Tim. Got it. Got it. I'll download a devotional app. Where are we going to lunch anyway? God help us. Listen, I pray, I, this is my prayer, and I've been up early this morning praying this, this today, that, that my prayer is that you don't leave here just going, okay, yeah, yeah, read your Bible. <laughs> my prayer is that you leave here today loving Jesus more than you did when you walked in, 
and loving his word more. My prayer is that you leave here with a growing, burning desire to study, to know, to live his word. I pray there's an urgency that gets lit on the inside of you. But for that to happen, we need more than a sermon. For that to happen, we need more than a good talk and a cool song. We need the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to stop right now and pray as we dive into this. And we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to do this inside of us. Because I don't care, it it could be a good talk or a bad talk, but if the Spirit of God is moving, there is power. So, Spirit of God, we just invite you to move and have your way in this. Lord, whatever happens in the next few minutes, don't let it just be another sermon about reading your Bible. Let it be a life-giving word. Lord, as we see what it means that the early disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Lord, I pray that it's mirrored in our life. We don't just read this as a history book. We read it as what you're doing in us, New Life Church, on this day, on this Sunday. You are speaking something to us. So let us, as we encounter you, Lord, let us be changed and light a fire on the inside of us. Holy Spirit, have your way in this next little while here. Have your way. Do what only you can do, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at the text. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I got three questions that will form the outline for today. Three very simple questions. Number one, what does that even mean? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does it mean? Number two, how did they do it? That's pretty practical. And number three, what difference does it make? Now, that third question, we won't fully unpack that today because there's way more to be said that can be said in one message. Uh, I once had uh, breakfast with N.T. Wright <laughs> many years ago, and he said, the trouble with theology is that you have to say everything you believe all the time or else someone will think you don't believe it. And as it's completely physically impossible to say everything you believe all the time, constantly you'll be miscommunicating. And so I want you to know, if I don't say something about this topic that you think should be said, Come back next week. Amen. How about that? Okay, so they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching. First question, what does that mean? Well, if you were here the first week of the month you rem- or the year, you remember we said that the word translated devoted there, if you looked it up in a lexicon, means to be strong toward, to persist, to associate closely, or serve personally. That's what it means to be devoted to something or someone. So in Acts 8, Simon becomes a believer and he follows Philip around everywhere he went. And the Greek word is devoted. He followed him everywhere. In Acts 10, Cornelius has a man working for him who is his attendant. He attends to his needs, same word in Greek, devoted. So to be devoted to something means more than just noticing it. It involves giving yourself to it paying careful attention to it, it is of utmost importance to you. And it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. To be devoted to something means it is a matter of priority and allegiance. Now, those are two very important words, and I was trying to think how I could illustrate this to you, and the best thing I could think of is... um, So when our second son, Graham, uh, when he started courting and dating Kara, uh, he went through a transformation, okay? And all of a sudden, his priorities changed and his allegiance changed. So when when the boys and I would say, hey, Graham, you want to go to a movie on Friday night? He would say, well, let me check Kara's, uh, you know, her calendar. And we were like, well, should you check your calendar? Because you're the one we're inviting. He was like, no, I, I, you know, I just see what Kira's doing. Because she became the priority. And his allegiance was to her. And there were times he was living in our house, and he was over at the Hall's house morning. He was at our house. And, and in fact, one time, we were up here at church, and Wendy, who's Kara's mom, uh, was there. And uh, Nathaniel, I remember him saying, as she was walking by, Nathaniel said, say hello to Graham for us. <laughs> because he met this young lady, and his priorities changed. His allegiance changed. See, when we talk about being devoted to the apostles' teaching, it means you give priority to the word of God over other things that might want your attention and time. In other words, the word of God isn't an add-on. It's not additional equipment like on a car. Should I get the sunroof? Should I not get the sunroof? Should I read my Bible today? Should I not read? No, no, no. It has priority. 
And, and, and to be devoted to apostles' teaching means beyond just making it a priority, it is your allegiance, meaning that if something in the Scripture disagrees with you, you are the one who changes, not the Scripture. Because Scripture, properly interpreted, and I have to throw that in because there's lots of bad interpretation out there, okay? Scripture, properly interpreted, is the authority, not my opinion. So this is what it means to be devoted. If we're going to be, dev- we're going to be a church that's devoted to the Word of God, it means it gets priority, it gets allegiance. Second question, how did they do it? Well, remember, the end of Acts 2 comes after the beginning of Acts 2. This is very profound. Mike, try to keep up, buddy, okay? This is very profound, very deep. I know some of you are like, what an intelligent young man up there. Uh, uh, it's not deep at all. It's pretty simple. So, so everything that happens at the end of Acts 2 is a result of the beginning of Acts 2, and the beginning of Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost. When they hear a sound as a rushing mighty wind and, t- and tongues as a fire come and gone them. And they, the text says they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began speaking in other tongues. And other people heard them proclaiming the mighty deeds of God in their own language. And then Peter gets up and he preaches a very aggressive, very biblical sermon. 3,000 people get saved that day. And then the very next verse is verse 42. When they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So... All the things that happen in Acts 2, 42 through 47 are a result of the filling of the Spirit. In other words, when the Spirit is poured out, they got hungry for God's Word. And I want you to know that when we are filled with the Spirit, when we are overwhelmed by the Spirit's presence and power, a passion for the Word of God always follows. And if you don't see that passion on the inside of you for God's word, you might ask the question, am I really filled with the spirit? See, it's not, the question isn't, do we focus on the spirit or do we focus on the word? You know, which one should get primacy and which one should get the most attention? No, no, no. It's that when there is an authentic move of the spirit, he will always lead you to the word. Because the very first element that set these new spirit-filled disciples of Jesus apart from the crowd, the very first thing Luke thought of when he looked at this little band of 3,000 Christ followers was their devotion to the Word of God. Here's the principle. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. Is New Life Church a spirit-filled church? Well, ask yourself the question, does the Spirit of God lead the people of God to submit to the Word of God? And in fact, one way, and you guys, and, and you know, this is not the typical message in a, in a charismatic church, but, but this is the Word of God, right? If you want to know, if you want one way to measure the work of the Spirit in your own life, and it's not the only way, okay, this is just one way, but one way to measure the work of the Spirit in your life is your desire for the Word, do you want to read the word? Do you, do you, when you come to church, do you just endure the sermon? Or are you sitting on the edge of your seat saying, God's about to speak? Because when God's word is read, God's voice is heard. So that's the question. Because a, a hunger for the word of God is a result of the spirit. And this shouldn't surprise us too much, should it? Because didn't Jesus say in John 14 that the spirit would remind us of what Jesus had said? So this is just part of the job description of the Holy Spirit. It's who he is. It's what he does. So in the early days of the church, there's this hunger. Man, they are hungry. They were devoted. It was their priority. It was their allegiance. They were devoted to the word of God, and it has been that way ever since, that wherever the spirit is moving, there's a passion. People get thirsty. They get hungry for God's word. Let me just illustrate that to you. Um, A few weeks ago, I, I, I... referenced this book called The Heavenly Man uh, by Brother Yun, um, and I referenced just kind of the persecution he went through and the way he experienced God's presence in that, but uh, there's even a, probably even a greater story towards the beginning of the book, and it begins when, when his father had cancer and his father was dying, and they didn't know the Lord, and in fact, this was days during the Cultural Revolution in China where it was illegal to have a Bible, uh, there couldn't be any preaching, um, and it was, it was very strict and very hard. Um, and his dad was dying, and his mom remembered a day many years ago before the missionaries had been kicked out that some missionary had come and told him about this guy, Jesus. And she couldn't remember many things about Jesus except that 
He was God, and all she could remember was he died on the cross for us, and he went around healing people. That's all she could remember. I mean, that's a pretty good start, okay? Uh, so, but they, she didn't know how to pray. She didn't have the words. She didn't have any scriptures. So she calls Brother Yun in, and the two of them sit over her, his dad, and they pray all through the night. But the, the only thing they know to say is, Jesus, heal Father. That's in their entire prayer. So they're rocking back, Jesus, heal Father. Jesus, heal Father. Jesus, heal Father all night long. The next morning, he supernaturally healed. Now, they had never read the Bible. They didn't, know, they didn't know the command, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You know, they didn't know that, but they just figured if Jesus did that for them, they should probably tell somebody. <laughs> Which I think is a little bit of an indictment on us. Because sometimes we got to be prodded to tell people. They didn't even have the word, and they just knew, hey, if somebody does something for you, you ought to tell somebody. So they invite their neighbors to come in. Their neighbors think they're coming to a funeral. So they're all dressed in black. They're ready, you know, they're thinking they're a funeral. And out from the back door walks his dad, and he's healed. And he goes, I don't really know what to say except we just prayed that Jesus would heal. And I don't really even know Jesus, but thought you should know. And here's what happened. The, The Spirit of God was doing something, and there began to be a hunger. Listen to this. He said, at first, I didn't really know who Jesus was, but I'd seen him heal my father and liberate our family. I confidently committed myself to the God who had healed my father and saved us. During that time, I frequently asked my mother who Jesus truly was. She told me, Jesus is God who died on the cross for us, taking our sins, and his teachings were recording in the Bible. I asked if there were any words of Jesus left that I could read for myself. She replied, no. All his words are gone. There is nothing left of his teaching. This was during the Cultural Revolution when Bibles could not be found. From that day on, I earnestly wanted to have a copy of my own Bible. I asked my mother and fellow Christians what a Bible looked like, but no one knew. One person had seen some hand-copied scripture portions and some song sheets, but never a whole Bible. Only a few old believers could recall seeing Bibles many years before. The Word of God was scarce in the land. I was so hungry for a Bible. Seeing my desperation, my mother remembered an old man who lived in another village. This man had been a pastor before the Cultural Revolution. Together, we started out on the long walk to his home. When we found him, we told him our desire. We long to see a Bible. Do you have one? He immediately looked fearful. This man had already spent nearly 20 years in prison for his faith. Let that sink in for a second. He looked at me and saw that I was young and poor with tattered clothes and bare feet. He felt compassion, but he still didn't want to show me his Bible. I don't blame him, because in those days, there were very few Bibles in the whole of China. Nobody was allowed to read any book other than Mao's Little Red Book. If caught with a Bible, it would be burned, and the owner's whole family would be severely beaten in the middle of the village. Come on, guys. We We don't know about this stuff, do we? The old pastor simply told me, the Bible is a heavenly book. If you want one, you'll need to pray to the God of heaven. Only he can provide you with a heavenly book. God is faithful. He always answers those who seek him with all their heart. I fully trusted the pastor's words. When I returned home, I brought a stone into my room and knelt down on it every evening for prayer. I had one simple prayer. Lord, please give me a Bible. Amen. At that time, I didn't know how to pray, but I continued for more than a month. Nothing happened. A Bible didn't appear. I went back to the pastor's house again. This time I went alone. I told him, I've prayed to God according to your instructions, but I still haven't received a Bible. I want so much. Please, please show me your Bible. Just a glance and I'll be satisfied. I don't even have to touch it. You hold it and I'll just be content to look at it. And and maybe if I could copy down some of the words, I'd be happy. The pastor saw the anxiety of my heart and he spoke to me again. If you're serious then you should not only kneel down and pray to the Lord, you should fast and weep. The more you weep, the sooner you'll get a Bible. Again, a prayer technique we don't talk much about, okay? I went home, and every morning and afternoon, I ate and drank nothing. Every evening, I ate just one small bowl of steamed rice. I cried like a hungry child to his heavenly Father, wanting to be filled with his word. For the next 100 days, I prayed for a Bible until I could bear it no more. My parents were sure that I was losing my mind. 
Looking back years later, I would say this whole experience was the most difficult thing I've ever endured. By way of context, the guy was beaten with rods. He was imprisoned. He was stripped naked and thrown out into the winter cold. Uh, And he says that was easier than living without God's word. Then suddenly, I like those suddenlies, don't you like that? Then suddenly, one morning at 4 a.m., after months of begging God to answer my prayers, I received a vision from the Lord while kneeling beside my bed. In the vision, I was walking up a steep hill trying to push a heavy cart in front of me. I was heading towards a village where I intended to beg for food. I was struggling greatly because in my vision, I was hungry and weakened by fasting. The old cart was about to roll back and fall on me. I then saw three men walking down the hill in the opposite direction. A kind old man who had a very long beard was pulling a large cart full of fresh bread. Two other men were walking on either side of the cart. When the, other man, when the old man saw me, he felt great pity and showed me compassion. He said, are you hungry? I replied, yes. I have nothing to eat. I'm on my way to get food for my family. I wept because my family was extremely poor. Because of my father's sickness, we'd sold everything valuable to buy medicine. We had little to eat, and for years we'd been forced to beg for food from friends and family. When the old man asked if I was hungry, I couldn't help but cry. I'd never felt such love and compassion from anyone before. In the vision, the old man took a red bag of bread from his trolley and handed it to the two servants to give to me. He said, you must eat it immediately. I opened the wrapping and saw there was a bun of fresh bread inside. When I put the bun in my mouth, it instantly turned into a Bible. Immediately in my vision, I knelt down with my Bible. I cried out to the Lord in thanksgiving, Lord, your name is worthy to be praised. You didn't despise my prayer. You allowed me to receive this Bible. I want to serve you the rest of my life. I woke up and started searching the house for the Bible. The rest of the family was asleep. The vision had been so real to me that when I realized it had only been a dream, I was deeply anguished and I wept loudly. My parents rushed to my room to see what had happened. They thought I had gone crazy because of all the fasting and praying. I told them about my vision, but the more I shared, the crazier they thought I was. Mother said, the day hasn't dawned yet and no one has come to the house. The door is locked. My father held me tightly. With tears in his eyes, he cried to God, Lord, have mercy on my son. Please don't let him lose his mind. I'm willing to be sick again if it will prevent my son from losing his mind. Please give my son a Bible. My mother, father, and I knelt down and wept together arm in arm. Suddenly, I heard a faint knock at the door. A very gentle voice called my name. I rushed over and asked through the locked door, are you bringing bread to me? The gentle voice replied, oh, yes, we have a bread feast for you. I immediately recognized the voice as the same one I had heard in the vision. I quickly opened the door, and there standing before me were the same two servants I had seen in the vision. One man held a red bag in his hand. My heart raced as I opened the bag and held in my hands my very own Bible. The two men quickly departed into the still of the darkness. I clutched my Bible to my heart and fell down on my knees outside the door. I thanked God again and again. I promised Jesus from that moment on I would devour his word like a hungry child. Later, I found out the names of those two men. One was Brother Wong, the other Brother Son. They came from a village far away. They told me about an evangelist whom I'd never met. He had suffered terribly for the Lord during the Cultural Revolution and had nearly died while being tortured. About three months before I received my Bible, this evangelist had received a vision from the Lord. God showed him a young man to whom he was to give his hidden Bible. In the vision, he saw our house and the location of our village. Like many Christians at the time, the old man had placed his Bible in a can and buried it deep in the ground, hoping a day would come when he could dig it up and read it again. Despite this vision, it took the evangelist a few months before he decided to obey what the Lord had told him to do. By the way, side note here, if you're praying for something and it's taken a while, maybe sometimes there's other people involved in this. 
He asked the two Christian men to deliver it to me. They then walked throughout the night to reach my home. From that moment on, I prayed to Jesus with faith-filled prayer. I fully trusted that the words in the Bible were God's words to me. I always held the Bible, even slept with it. I laid it on my chest. I devoured its teachings like a hungry child. This was the first gift I ever received from God in prayer. Oh, friends. Sometimes I think we take for granted the fact that we have the word of God in our own language. I, I got 12 translations up in my office. I, I, you know, I, I got PC study Bibles, got another dozen or so on there. And, and there are people on the planet who don't have God's word. Oh, may we never take it for granted. Look, whenever the Spirit of God moves, there's going to be a hunger for the Word of God. That's the way it was in Acts chapter 2. These early believers, they were marked by a hunger for God's Word. And that was a distinctive of the church for the first several hundred years. About a month ago or so, I mentioned this book that I've been reading. It was one of the books I got for Christmas. Uh, It's a book by Larry Hurtado called Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. I just finished it this week. It's an incredible book, okay? But what's really fascinating to me is the ways early Christianity was different from the other religions that surrounded it in the Roman Empire. So he talks about, for example, there was Mithraism. There was the cult of Jupiter. There was other religions like that. And they all had buildings, They had temples, they had shrines, they had priests, they had animal sacrifices, but they have left us no texts, no word of God. They had left all the, archaeologically, we can find all this other stuff, but no no texts. Christianity, by contrast, had no buildings, no temples, shrines, priests, or sacrifices, but they had a library of texts. The teachings of the apostles, and in fact, we know uh, historically that before the church was building church buildings, they were building libraries, things to contain the text of the scriptures. Can you imagine, just imagine with me, a a, a conversation between somebody who was in Mithraism and an early disciple of Jesus. And and, and the the person from Mithraism or the cult of Jupiter would say, hey, I I noticed you don't have any buildings. And the Christian said, well, that's because we are the church, the people of the church. We don't, don't, the church isn't a building, it's, it's us. Well, okay, if you don't have a building, then where's your temple? Oh, Oh, you see, Jesus was the temple, and and we actually believe we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He he lives in us. Well, if you don't have any buildings or temples, then then where do you keep your shrines? I mean, how do you know what is a holy place? Well, because the Spirit's in us, wherever we go is holy. We don't go anywhere that God's not present. He's there, so we we don't have shrines. Well, if you don't have buildings or temples or shrines, then where do your priests work? Well, We don't really have priests per se because Jesus is the great high priest and then we are a kingdom of priests. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So we're all priests. Okay, well, if you don't have any buildings, temples, or shrines and you don't have any priests, then who does the animal sacrifices? Well, we don't have animal sacrifices because there was one sacrifice good for all people at all times, Jesus Christ, and he's been raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And he rules and reigns. Well, then, what, what, what do you have? We have the Word of God. We have the Scriptures. And so, from very early on, collections of letters from the apostles went around, like collections of Paul's letters. Second uh, Peter three. Peter's talking about Paul's letters. He's talking about a collection of Paul's letters that was going around to the early church. And even in the second half of the first century, he's calling them Scripture. And the letters were passed around and they were read as part of corporate worship. From the very beginning, the move of the Spirit produced this passion, this drive, this desire to know God's Word. And historically, wherever Christianity has gone, literacy has followed. Because historically, we've taught people how to read. Why? Because we're people of the book. God's Word, the text revealed to us. Now, you might be here this morning and go, man, I, I don't know. I'm not really feeling that passion, Tim. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I got no condemnation for you. So why don't you do this? Why don't you ask the Spirit of God to make you hungry? I mean, if you sense a lack of desire, then go to the one who baptizes in fire in the Spirit and ask him to make you hungry. The second thing you could do is fast. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but when you fast, you get hungry. 
This is how this works. If you don't eat, you get hungry, right? So if you see a lack of hunger for God's word, then maybe you need to fast some of the other words you've been filling yourself up on. And I'm gonna, rec- I'm just gonna suggest thing. I'm just nobody get mad at me. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna throw this across the bow, okay? No one get mad. If I was Catholic, I would do the sign of the cross right now, but I'm not. Maybe you need to fast social media for a little while. I knew that wasn't gonna go over well, but just think about it for a second. Maybe some of us are getting so full on all these other words that are out there that we have no hunger for the word of God. So maybe we ought to fast a little, be led by the spirit. Maybe, maybe we need to, maybe, maybe somebody here needs to watch less sports. I mean, not, let, not during March Madness, but after that. Um, let's not get crazy. Uh, or maybe, maybe, maybe you need to turn the TV off, like, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe watch less Netflix or Prime or Hulu or Spectrum or whatever your preferred method of TV watching is. Maybe we ought to fast so that we get hungry. Number three, third question, what difference does it make? I mean, does it even make a difference? I mean, like what's the big deal, right? Some people will say things like this, look, man, I don't need to study the scripture because I have Jesus. Man, me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. And by the way, doctrine divides, so I don't need any of that doctrine stuff. And then they'll say something like this, no creed but Christ. You ever heard that? No creed but Christ. There's a lot of problems with that sentence, not the least of which, that's a creed. (laughs) Beyond that, which Christ are you talking about? There are a lot of fake Jesuses out of there, a lot of false Christs, and a lot of ideas about who Jesus really is. How are you going to know the real Jesus? I mean, in, in, in certain liberal churches, they say Jesus was a good guy, he was a good teacher, but he wasn't God incarnate. Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus was basically Michael the archangel, a created being that became a man. Unitarian Universalism says that Jesus was essentially an incarnation of Mr. Rogers, whose preaching was basically, please, please won't you be my neighbor? It's kind of... The New Age guru Deepak Chopra told Larry King on his show, I see Christ as a state of consciousness we can all aspire to. Or, or how about this one? This, this, this is Scientology. Scientology says that Jesus is an implant forced upon a thetan about a million years ago. Yeah, I don't even know what that sentence means. I don't it's just... One author writing about this said, and I quote, I would explain that position more thoroughly, but I have never smoked weed or done any drugs. Subsequently, I apparently lack the imagination to understand a religion started by a science fiction writer that has unleashed Tom Cruise on the world as Billy Graham's evil doppelganger. (laughs) It gets even worse than that. There is even, I'm not, I can't make this stuff up, you guys. There is a nudist arsonist cult that thinks that the word Jesus in the Bible is a code word for hallucinogenic mushrooms that are being eaten before you get naked and set things on fire. (laughs) I couldn't make that up. What am I saying? A lot of weird ideas. How are you going to know which one's the real Jesus? And I'll be honest with you, the most dangerous picture of Jesus out there is not the Scientology view or the nudist arsonist cult, because all of us know that's not right, and we're not going to be deceived by that. The most dangerous false Jesus out there is sadly the one you meet sometimes in church. It's the religious stained glass Jesus. The stained glass Jesus is an emasculated Jesus. It's a Jesus without a personality, without passion. He's not human. You can't really know him, and you don't even know if you want to know him. Let me tell you something. If your picture of Jesus does not make you love him, you don't have the real Jesus. If your picture of Jesus doesn't take your breath away, you're not looking at the real Jesus. And the place you meet the real Jesus is in the scriptures. There's over 100 movies. If you look this up, I mean, don't do it now, but if you, you can do it later. There's over, been over 100 movies that have been made about Jesus, top-grossing movies like The Passion of the Christ or The Da Vinci Code, right? And I got to tell you, my problem with most of the Jesus movies that I've seen, and I've seen a lot of them, is not that they're blasphemous, although some of them are. Okay, probably the worst one uh, was actually a Canadian flick, 
no offense, but, but it was a Canadian flick, which was a kung fu horror musical comedy. Yes, a kung fu horror musical comedy entitled Jesus Christ, Vampire Hunter, which pairs Jesus with Mexican wrestling hero El Santo to battle an army of vampires that can walk in the daylight. I mean, this is just bizarre. And of course, it's ridiculous, right? My problem is, is, is not with these movies is not just that they're ridiculous, right? But some of these movies try to make you think you're seeing the real Jesus when you're seeing nothing of the sort. And how are you going to know what the real Jesus is? I mean, instinctively, we know Jesus, vampire hunter, is ridiculous, and that's not the real Jesus. But if you don't have a commitment to the apostles' teaching about Jesus, how are you going to know the real Jesus? And listen, there is nothing more important than knowing and loving the real Jesus. I mean, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, if you just say, well, look, look, I just, I I get it, but I just got my own feeling. I got this own sense of Jesus and who he is and everything. How are you ever going to know when it's just your imagination and it's the real Jesus? If you don't, if if you have no standard, if there's no authority, how are you going to know you're not just talking to an imaginary friend? There's got to be an authority. There's got to be a way to know. And it's found in the scriptures. And remember, this is another reason you know the real Jesus. Our destiny in God is to be made in the image of Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed, you guys. That's where we're, that is sanctification. Sanctification is not just being made weird. Some people think, you know, being made holy is being made weird, which means they have a weird view of God. But set that aside for a second. It, sanctification is being made like Jesus. That's where we're going. 1 Peter 2.21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus is first of all our Savior, and he's also our example. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 10.25, it is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the student to be like his master. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 said, I want to know Christ. And then he said in verse 10, becoming like him. I want to be like Jesus. What is Paul saying? If he did it, I want to do it. If Jesus said it, I want to say it. If Jesus felt it, I want to feel it. If something thrilled the heart of Jesus, I want it to thrill my heart. If something broke Jesus' heart, I want it to break my heart. Apostle John, 1 John 3, 2, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Listen, when you see Jesus as he is, you will be transformed to be like him. If it's the real Jesus and not a fake Christ. Most of us know Romans 8.28, you know, in all things God works for the good of those who love him to those who have been called according to his purpose. Do you know what verse 29 says? It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. What is that saying? Our destiny. It's to be like Jesus. He's making us like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into weirdness? No. Being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Who you think Jesus is will affect who you think you are and who you're becoming. This is really important, you guys. If you see Jesus as wonderful and beautiful and brilliant and passionate and loving and kind and strong and righteous and alive and active and pure, if you see Jesus as the Prince of Peace, if you see Jesus as the healer, if you see Jesus as the shepherd, you never, ever again can see yourself as stupid, worthless, addicted idiot who can never do anything. Because if you see that yourself that way, hear me, you have a faulty view of God. Amen. And you're probably thinking, no, no, no I have a, maybe I have a problem with self-esteem or a view of myself. Well, that's your problem too, but that problem comes from the deeper problem. And the deeper problem is you aren't looking at the real Jesus. You have a faulty, mistaken view of God. The number one reason, you guys, the number one reason Christians live in bondage to things that Jesus already delivered them from is that they have a wrong view of who God is and what Jesus is like. You can't see the real Jesus and truly know the real Jesus and still hate yourself and be full of self-loathing. Can't do it. You can't walk around saying, I'm a worthless, no good piece of 
fill in the blank. I almost said it. Ooh, that would have been scary. I, you can't do that because that's who you used to be. If you know Jesus, he is transforming you into his image. You know what 1 Corinthians says, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, after Paul just said, here's some people who are not inheriting the kingdom of God, he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Oh, man. If you have met the Lord, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then his spirit lives in you and he is actively transforming you into the image of Jesus. You can't even get upset about your problems anymore because they work for you now. They're making you more like Jesus. You might say, well, you you don't understand. I've made a lot of mistakes. (laughs) Join the club. Right? Get in the same line. I mean, so have I. Maybe made more mistakes than you, but that don't change what the word says. Just because you screwed up in life, that doesn't change what the word says. The Bible is what the Bible is. The Bible says what the Bible says. Jesus is who Jesus is, and you are who Jesus says you are, whether you feel like it or not. So if you know the Lord, hear me, this isn't what you're going to be someday in the sweet by and by. If you know the Lord, you are right now, this very moment, a child of God. If you know the Lord, you are right now, this moment, a new creation. You have a new destiny. You've, been, you've got a new identity in Jesus Christ. You've been robed in righteousness. You've been bought with an infinite price. You are part of the blameless, ravishing the heart of God, bride of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And you are becoming like Jesus. See, if you don't devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, to the word, you're not going to know who God is, you're not going to know who you are, and you're going to have a real hard time discerning what the truth is. Because there's a lot of people out there today in the world, there's a lot of truth claims out there. Have you noticed? Now, you don't have to go out into the world. There's a lot of truth claims in the church that are mutually exclusive. They're competing claims. How are you going to know which one's true? I mean, how are you going to know what is true and what's masquerading as truth? How are you going to know what is eternal truth and what's just a fad? Just this week, just this week, Barna Group, which is a research group, I think based at the University of Arizona, they came out with a study, they released it that said that 67% of parents of preteens in the church, okay, so these are people who claim to be Christian, who have preteens as kids, 67% believe their kids have a Christian worldview. When they do the research on those preteens, the number is actually 2% have a Christian biblical worldview. Lord, help us. And look, some of you are probably thinking, okay, yeah, but we're new life. We're we're better than the average church. And to be honest, we are better than the average church. (laughs) If you're a visitor here today, uh, we're not being proud. We're just, you know, (laughs) we're we're, we're not only really good looking, we're also (laughs) above average. But let's say we're 10 times better than the average. That's only 20%. I'm not okay with that. How are we going to teach our kids a biblical Christian worldview? We better be devoted to the scriptures. We better be devoted to the apostles' teaching. This is how we're going to know what truth is. This is how we're going to prepare our kids to know what truth is. In fact, Ephesians 1.13, Paul is talking and he says, and you were also included in Christ. And I love that phrase, included in Christ. When you, listen to this, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And and actually on multiple occasions in the New Testament, the, the word is called the word of truth. I heard one pastor say, listen, read a lot of scripture. It's the only thing you know is true. And I don't know about you, but it's becoming increasingly clear to me that when I watch the news on TV or online, I don't really know what's true and what's not, to be honest with you. But I know when I'm in here, it's true. Jesus was praying in John 17. He was talking to the Father, and he said this, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. How are you going to know the truth? You've got to know his word. This is how we protect ourselves from deception. This is how we protect ourselves from believing things that are are following things that aren't from God. 
Some years ago, I had a pastor friend who was um, down in western Kentucky, and he and his wife, they went to London for the first time, and they were navigating for the first time the London Underground, okay? They call it the tube, if you've ever been to London. And, and you know, from somebody from western Kentucky, that, that's not an easy thing to do, to navigate the London Underground. You know, and on this particular time, it was hot, uh, and there was a lot of people, it was packed out, and there was people who hadn't bathed, you know, and, and so they're, they're all kind of crammed in, and they're holding their, like a little pipe, you know, like a pole here, and they're all holding here, and he looks down, and he sees his wife, and he sees some anxiety on her face. She's on comfortable, you know, she's a little bit, you know, like, I don't really like this too much. And so he just begins to, he tries to be a good husband, you know, he's just saying, be encouraging to his wife. And so he, he begins to just kind of caress her hand and he begins to speak to her and say, oh honey, I love being in London with you. It's such a great time. I know this is kind of, you know, not what we always do, but isn't that awesome? We're in London and I love you so much, so beautiful today. You know, he's just saying, you know, the kind of things that, you know, a husband says to his wife to encourage her. And after about a minute of this, she says, David? And he says, yes, dear. That's not my hand. <laughs> he looks down and there's another woman standing there. Her eyes are as big as saucers, like he's a serial killer or something. Yeah. You know what I think happens sometimes? <laughs> Stuff starts happening in the world. There are different movements, even in the church, and we just start petting it. Oh, yeah, look at this, look at this. And the whole time God's going, that's not my hand. How are you going to know what his hand is? you got to know the word. This is the correction? This is the protection? And even during worship, you know, Kathy Gooden came up to me. She said she, this morning as she was driving in, and, and, and uh, I think it was this morning, it was maybe during worship, and as she was coming, she just had this sense that maybe there might be somebody who's, like, worried about making a mistake or going the right way. And, and what I, what I, if I got this correctly, what the Spirit of God was, was speaking to her was, if you stay in the Word and you surround yourself with people who are in the Word, that's protection. That He'll take you the right way. You just stay in the word and you stay around people who are in the word. And here's the deal, you guys, and I'm almost done. When, when, when you know the truth about God, when you know the truth about yourself, when you know the truth about this world, there is extraordinary freedom. Oh, my goodness. Jesus said it this way. John chapter 8, verse 32, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And remember, he said, your word is truth. If you know the truth, it'll set you free. You know, there are times when people come to me sometimes and ask for counsel. And, um, you know, I don't think I'm the best counselor in the world necessarily, but I do what I can. And I will sometimes ask them. I'll say, okay, when they say, here's what's going on, I'll ask them, okay, so what does the word say about this? And how do you read it? Now, I have precedent for that because Jesus did the same thing. In Luke chapter 10, a lawyer comes up to him and says, teacher, how do we inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him the question, well, what does, the, what does the scripture say? How do you read it? Right? So I have precedent for doing that. And a lot of times when I ask them that, they'll start thinking about what the word says, and they realize they always had the answer within them already. They just needed some coaching to get it out. Right? Because the word was already in them, and they already had the answer. But a lot of times they'll say something like this to me. Well, I don't know. That's why I came to you. You know, this is why, isn't this why you, what you get paid for? And, and just know, this is, that's a wrong view of the pastor, <laughs> number one. But that's also a wrong view of themselves. See, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not the pastor will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's not the truth I know that sets you free. It's the truth you know that sets you free. Because I know some stuff. And now there's some other stuff I don't know. But it's not about what I do or do not know. It's about what you know. Right. Do you know? You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Man, there is such freedom in knowing this. And I'll just, I'm just you know, I'll close with this, guys. I have experienced this in my own life. Here's my testimony. I have always preached the very same thing about knowing the truth and the truth will set you free. And I've always believed that. But in the last few years... God has taken me to a deeper place in the gospel of really being transformed by God's word and by God's gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord. 
and that I am justified. I'm de- I am declared righteous because of what Jesus did on the cross. I've been adopted into the family of God. I call him Abba, which means I get what I need from him. Uh, and I just, this is my testimony, okay? This is my story that, that, that for a lot of times, there, were, there was a while there where I, I, I kind of needed affirmation by my family. I needed my family to affirm because that was, that's kind of where I got my identity. That's where I got my significance or my worth. I felt I could go, it's okay to be Tim Parrish, you know, because I got affirmed by my family. And first of all, that's terrible because that's putting them in the place of God, and that's really not fair to them or me. But now, yeah, I don't really need their affirmation. I like their affirmation, okay? I want their affirmation, but I don't need it. You know why? Because I'm getting it all from him. Because I'm taking the gospel into my heart, and the gospel is transforming me, and I know I'm already accepted. I'm already adopted. I'm already approved. Because of, not because of me, because of what Jesus did on the cross. He has declared, Tim Paris, you are righteous. I used to really need, man, I really did. I really needed approval by you which is a terrible way to live. <laughs> I mean, y'all are pretty good and all, but you can't be God to me. My happiness can't be based on your approval. Amen. That's not fair to you or me. But guess what? Now I'm like, okay, God, I'm approved by you. I'd like to be approved by you. And by, by the way, side note, I think you should. But anyway, that's a side note. But you know what? I don't need it. If I get it, awesome. If I don't, that's fine because I got approval from God. I'm getting my significance from God. My worth comes from him. My value. Jesus paid an infinite price for me. So that says my value is of infinite worth. So I get that from him. So if you like me, don't like me, okay, whatever. But I get it from him. And you know what that means? That means I'm free. I'm free. And you know what else it means? It means I can really love. Jesus was so secure in his relationship to the Father that they could be nailing him to a tree, and he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. You want to talk about freedom? How about if you were so free, it didn't matter what anybody did, they couldn't take your joy from you because you're getting it all from here, Father. That's free? And that means he... He was free to truly love when people were crucifying him. Man, you want to be free? Get, let the gospel in so deep that you walk around like nobody owes you anything. They don't owe you anything because you're getting it all from the Father. I don't, I, you want to give me something? Great. But I don't need it because I got Jesus. And then you're free. But it, it all comes from knowing the truth. And the truth will set you free. How are you going to know the truth? you got to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. 